pretty much every single form of American music, I think you could really argue, is Black American music and is totally indebted. I mean, everything Ariana Grande has ever written, everything that anybody's ever written practically, it's Black American music. What are these things called? Le- Lekvalesas? Lek- Lek- Lex Loxes? Oh, Lassi. Lassi. They're, they're usually much oranger. Like, I think Adele was um, following a white woman's recipe. Mm. Are, we, are, you, are you ready to go? We're, recording? We're rolling. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast that pays us in digital street cred and nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. not, yet, not yet anyway i'm looking yeah what's the exchange rate <laughs> <laughs> one one day we, we need to uh, you know a few people actually have asked me about a donate button on um oh, hey. on the on the for the podcast so we'll we'll get that together cash uh, app dollar sign yeah well yeah if you just want to donate uh dollar sign garrett mcqueen we'll uh we'll put some some use to that uh that money for triloquy right now i'm looking at new microphones because I, I feel like the sultriness of my voice isn't really coming across as well as it could on these microphones you don't think so <laughs> okay um so before we get into movement one um a few announcements um i want to uh, give a shout out to all of the um young next notes composers grover how dare you get, we're in the new little studio area and it involves <laughs> Dell's cat Grover. Anyway, um, I would like to congratulate all of, the, I mean, just jumped right up there on the table. How like a dare ninja. You? How dare you, Grover? Um, <laughs> he must have been ready to keep it trill. Um, <laughs> so over the weekend, um, I hosted uh, the uh, Next Notes Award Ceremony for the American Composers Forum. So Next Notes is a program where they find um, high school age uh, uh, composers and music creators. They all uh, submit music and they uh, chose six winners. So I got to um, host that award ceremony um, and it, it included interviews that I gave, uh, you know, I, I conducted with them. And sure. But what was that like to host something that should have been attended live in a virtual way? I mean, it, well, it felt like radio, except now I have to care about what my face looks like mm. so and what shirt I actually have on and making sure I have a right expression. Anyway, so I, um, I hosted that. So shout out to the American Composers Forum. And I want to shout out each and every one of uh, the uh, the winners, the, the honorees. So that's uh, Kimani Bridges, Helen Fung, Charlotte Weinstein, Rohan Srinivasan, Gabriel Angelo Nukal, and Jasper Talwani, who actually um, opened up this opus of Triloquy by a first that all American music uh, is black music. I didn't even fish for that <laughs> for, for, for that from him. He just kind of gave that out. Um, if you want to take a look at um, uh, the award ceremony and the interviews that I did with the kids, uh, you can just uh, check those out on YouTube. Just uh, search American Composers Forum um, Next Notes. Now, you mentioned, Scott, uh, award ceremonies that were supposed to be uh, in person but were virtual. You know, mm-hmm. another award ceremony that went down over the weekend 
was uh, the BET Awards. So, so we're going to uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, I want to uh, shout out a listener, Seth Tyler, for pointing me to um, a piece of music that uh, we're going to talk about, that I'm going to talk about uh, in the first movement coming up that was written by Matthew Tyler in honor of the late Elijah McClain. Um, a shout out to Titus Underwood, who is uh, this week's uh, interview. We have uh, a really nice chat with him, the two of us, Scott. Um, and then I want to uh, shout out um, Tom Hazinga, who... I'll address in, in the triloquy for this week, Movement 4. All right, Movement 1, we got a few um, accidentals to uh, throw out. I'll, I'm going to start with one, Scott. So I have a, um, I'm going to put a sharp next to Shay Diamond, whose name was mentioned on the last Opus of Triloquy. Mm-hmm. Um, I included a little bit of her uh, music following my interview with Marvell Terry. Um, I, I just want to underscore... Um, her uh, as an artist, you know, sort of the loose theme for this opus of Triloquy. We're talking about American music as a black invention, you know, in, in all of its forms. And uh, when I listen to the music of Shea Diamond, you know, I hear what, you know, I would immediately call the roots sound, as I've learned from you and um, and others, uh, you, you know, sort of that down-home bluesy sound. And uh, more often than not these days, it's like, I don't know, a middle-aged uh, white guy with an electric guitar, you know, sounding good, whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but um, it's not a, a sound that we usually attribute to um, trans women, certainly mm-hmm. not a black mm-hmm. trans woman. And, yeah. I, and I think it really speaks to, um, uh, sorry, uh, I think it really speaks to how, you know, um, how dynamic um, black communities are, and I use that uh, word communities, um, and, and how it can come in, in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, I, I don't know, when you, when you hear uh, her music um, and then you understand, you know, the unfortunately the politics that go around, you know, um, identity specifically for black trans women, um, how, do you, how do you think a performance of her music would go in the spaces in which that music usually has a home? You know, these roots clubs, these bars. and Yeah, we talked a little bit about that, how you thought that with Shay performing, it would get uh, a bigger, perhaps negative reaction than if, say, our friend Molly Mayer did it. Well, I mean... Not that it would necessarily get a negative reaction, but I just can't help but to think of these. Um, and and I hope folks listening understand what I mean when I say roots, because that's a new term for me still. You know mm. that that bluesy sort of down home rock and roll rock. I don't. I wouldn't say rockabilly, but well, yeah. I, I guess this is a good opportunity for you to explain that. How, how would you define roots? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do. But but if you just if you listen to the music of Shea Diamond, you'll get what I mean. Like that southern blues, southern rock, you know, slow rock, and sure. And it just seems like the 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 places, the halls in which that music um, lives would not be a space that would be so welcoming to um, a black trans woman. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, I see that. It, it's I, I think it. Um, you know, and again, as we think about American music being a black invention, you know, I'm going to bring up a country singer um, later on in this opus. How you know got got a sort of a mix, a mixed reaction uh, from from black Twitter uh, mm. during the BET Awards. You know, I don't know. It, I just want to make sure that um, I, I said her name again, Shay Diamond, and to uh, encourage everyone to uh, go check out her music and just see how you know the aesthetics of uh, music that come from black queer communities sound just 
about everything. You know, we, we have the hip hop, we have the R&B, we have the punk, and we even have what I'll call this roots uh, music that, mm. uh, that that Shay Diamond has really done a, a great job of sharing with the world, particularly her song American Pie. Be sure to go check that out. You got an accidental uh, for us? I do, and uh, I'm just going to be paraphrasing this story from the Washington Post because I don't have permission to share any of sure. the contents here. But from Italy, I'll give you the headline. From Italy, Muti looks to reopen the U.S. classical music scene. So basically, Ricardo Muti's going, you know, um, even during the wars, we had culture. So during this pandemic, we need to prepare to be making music again to feed the soul of the the uh, the music fans of the yeah, world, the, the right? populace, yeah. right? So um, they recently he recently conducted a performance with the Vienna Philharmonic. Uh, not they made a particular comment here that it was not socially distanced. Now I know that things are different over there, but still that's risky. Yeah. And uh, he said that they uh, they played a concert of Cimarosa, Mozart, and Schubert. And now, there were folks in the audience. What's that? There were folks in the audience? Yep. Now, here's my sharp reaction, because later on in it, uh, Moody basically comes out and he says, you know, I want to see more people of color on stage and going to see these concerts. And he said, it's our fault, because we have treated this music like it is culturally superior, that uh, it's finer than mm-hmm. other sorts of music. Well, uh, pro tip here, Ricardo, you will not get people of color to go and sit through a concert of Cimarosa, Mozart, and Schubert. I mean, and that's just that, basically. So. As, I, I mean, and, and then especially uh, as we think about, like, you know, COVID is not gone. No. You know, if anything, COVID is back. You We've know. got record numbers today, right now. I mean, if you look at the, uh, like the, the charts from around the world as compared to the United States, it, it looked like we just, ne- and, and we were all distracted for a bit um, by, you know, the George Floyd protests. And, you know, as we continue to, you know, d- deal with all of that, um, but which actually I have another accidental about for uh, this movement, you know, it, it was easy for us to forget about that. But, you know, coronavirus is, is, is here yeah it's and here to stay it's everybody's going to brush up against it it's going to have its way with damn near everybody you know uh it was uh let me see this is july now so what maybe two months ago um you know i'm on the board for the saint paul chamber orchestra and uh they were planning on coming back in the fall but since then that's been um rolled out uh or or rolled back um and uh i think they're they're working on broadcast um, concerts in the hall with no audience, mm. but even mainly just string instruments so that the wind instruments, you know, aren't blowing, you're not blowing coronavirus all throughout the air with your bassoon <sighs> or whatever, you know, so it, it, it's still going to be very different. Very even, strange. Um, but but I don't know, but you, what you're saying to Ricardo Muti is that, you know, even if you're trying to get some folks out, that's not how you're going to do it. You're not going to do it, Chimarosa. <laughs> I know. You're going to have to get Beyonce into the hall, basically, for me. And even then. Something, right? Ooh, yeah. Mm. Well, um, I'm going to um, – I thought about talking about COVID a little bit, but um, all I'm going to say about that is – St- wear your mask and and I'm and I'm not even gonna we're not gonna have that discussion about the politics of wearing a mask wear your mask 
Um, stay inside when you can and just take care of yourself. Um, I, I had planned on a, uh, a connection with uh, Modus Mazorski and his alcoholism and how a lot of people are talking about how they're drinking more. Mm. You know, well, I guess we're here now. I mean, do you feel like you're drinking more or consuming something more? Well, I was smoking a little bit more than normal for a while. It was the, it was the week of George Floyd's yeah. uh, murder. And uh, to be honest with you, I think that everybody was probably hitting whatever they are self-medicating with a little bit harder than extra, uh, harder than normal. But I will tell you that my, my alcohol consumption has not gone up. I've been really mindful of that. Yeah. And there's, there's days where, you know, I don't even have a drink, I have a beer. So I, I, I kind of caught myself kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I was drinking too much, but, you know, if having a cocktail every afternoon like is just becoming a normal thing if it's become a habit for me to walk over to, to the little liquor shelf you know that's when I was like all right well let me just chill out for a bit you know and everybody knows I smoke plenty of weed but um just take care of yourself out there don't be like Modus Mazorski who um you know drank himself to death and couldn't even finish his own orchestrations and stuff I yeah I, I guess when you write something as scary as Night on Bald Mountain you you know <laughs> got got some issues My final little um, accidental I have for this first movement. So, um, again, uh, in the uh, announcements here uh, earlier, I, I gave a shout-out to Seth Tyler, who pointed me to this piece of uh, music by Matthew Tyler, an etude uh, written in memory of Elijah McClain. Now, Scott, I hate coming in here every week talking about somebody else, but this one was particularly, I don't know, they're all, they all, they are all gut-wrenching, but... What really grabbed me about, you know, this one was what Elijah was saying in, in, in his final breath, saying, you know, I'm not like that. I don't have a gun. Doing his best to show respect, you know, to the police officers. And, yeah. And, um, that was a travesty, man. They, they, they went to the violent end immediately. Yeah. It, it, it also kind of lays out the geographic diversity, how this isn't a Southern issue. This mm. isn't a New York or, or L.A. issue, as we yep. saw back in 1992. I mean, Elijah McClain was slain in, in Colorado, right? And um, I, be, I believe it was Aurora. And uh, this was the same police department that took someone who had shot up a theater alive. Yep. Think about that. Yep. Someone who had murdered people was taken alive. Someone who was minding his own business walking home from the store was, you know, beaten and, and died brain dead in a hospital. Um, he, they injected him. Yeah, with ketamine. Yeah. So they to try to kick him back up. To, you know, they had knocked him out. So when the ambulance got there to kind of, you know, in an effort to, to, to wake him back up, you know, they shot him with ketamine, which apparently only, you know, quickened things. And, yeah, he died bruised up and brain dead in a hospital for just walking home My God. from the convenience store. Um, 
it, it just it, it brings me back to that. Con- and we're not going to stay here long, but it brings me back to that conversation of, you know, where are the good police? Where, where are these alleged good police officers? And I'm not talking about the individuals, but if you're a part of this system that has proven to be broken, we're only getting these responses um, these protests, um, the, the bits of change we are seeing with uh, police officers getting fired and, and, and charged, we're only seeing that because the world is seeing their crimes, you know. So for, Finally for, seen the video, you for, mean? For all, right. So for all of these generations, you know, what have we not seen? And who are these police officers that have gone home to their families knowing the cruel things that have been happening under their purview and they don't say anything about it. And anybody out there who says, you know that you're being recorded, you should act right. Um, If your number one motivation is not getting caught, you're doing it wrong. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, of course, you know, with, with, um, well, yeah, before I move on, um, be sure to uh, go to uh, Matthew Tyler's website and listen to that etude um, written uh, in honor of Elijah McLean. I listened earlier today and uh, what, uh, what I was thinking about as I listened was that idea of being alone, you know, dying alone, you know, just at the hands of police officers, you know, calling for your mother, calling for family, whatever. No, no one's there for you in that moment. And that's just it. And that's the sort of sadness I, I heard while listening to that etude. I'll be sure to put a, a link to that um, in, in the description. And you can also uh, find a link to that over on the um, Triloquy website. So, of course, Scott, with all of this stuff going on, um, the, the different ways everyone has been looking at the conversation of race, whether they're hopping on as a trend, you know, or, or just in, intensifying the work that they've already done. Of course, the BET Awards was something that everyone was going to be, you know, paying sure. extra attention to this year. Well, mm-hmm. with COVID and everything uh, it looked a little different. It was hosted uh, virtually, and um, was it D Nice? No, it was actually Amanda Seals who oh, hosted. Okay. If you know who she is, mm-hmm. um, and um, I thought they did a really great job. You know, really uh, a, a lots of uh, lots of phenomenal performances. One performance in particular we're going to talk about um, in the second movement. But um, but before we uh, moved on uh, to the second movement, uh, I wanted to uh, just you know give you my favorite moment when uh, Megan The Stallion uh, uh, premiered her um, uh, Girls in the Hood. And earlier today, Scott, when we were listening to it, and then we also went back and listened to the Easy E. You were talking about how when you first came upon that music when it came out, you know, mm-hmm. how um, the aesthetic was a little <laughs> scary for you. That was, was your word, scary. Yeah, yeah, well, and I don't know if it's the right word, but I can tell you that I watched that and immediately realized that I would never survive in that environment. Sure, you're right. That <laughs> I was um, nowhere near hardcore enough to even justify owning a recording of it yeah (laughs) yeah and and you remember when i when i did finally like start i started buying cds of public enemy and a black man that was uh dating a co-worker of mine was flipping through my cds and saw that yeah he laughed that this tall skinny white boy 
had like three Public Enemy CDs. <laughs> and, you know, and I tried to I tried to act, I tried to play it off like, you know what? The, it, it's great social commentary. I like the beat. Um, you know, Chuck D's voice is is um, very assertive. Yep. You, know? <laughs> you and, listen to what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I and I was into it. And I realized, though, that that was not my experience. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I don't I it was. I felt embarrassed to have it for a moment. I don't feel that way anymore. But I think but, it's but I think it's cool that you were there that you um you know you have more of a of an authentic relationship with that music in in that moment in time mm, than I mm-hmm. would because you know I was just too young. Of course I'm I know it growing up, you know, you 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 learned your hip hop history. So for me, you know, um seeing Megan the Stallion sort of uh shouted out was just kind of fun and yeah. you know I I I look at um women in their uh in, in their costumes artfully, so I also appreciated that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, shout out to Megan Thee Stallion. How about we listen to a little bit of her Girls in the Hood as we transition here into Movement 2. The girls in the hood are always hard. Ever since 16, I've been having a job, knowing nothing in life, but I gotta get rich. You could check the throwback pics, I've been that bitch. I'm a hot girl, I do hot shit, finish income on my outfit. I don't text quick, cause I ain't thirsty. These bitches mad mad, they wanna hurt me. I'm a hot girl, I do hot shit. Finish income on my outfit. Girls in the hood, I mean... I love it. What, what, what do you think of the, the the remake of it, knowing, again, the original Easy e and, and being there when that came out? Megan the Stallion has been going to some bar classes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, uh, I listened to her uh, in an interview, and she talks about how she um, watched her um, – her mother have to take care of her grandmother because, mm-hmm. um, you know, care for older people uh, wasn't great and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, one, one thing she's planning on doing is when she gets all of her millions and millions, uh, she's going to open up a facility um, to, to help uh, black families uh care for care for their elders mm, you know and, nice. and you know and you know on that side of it but also as a means of hiring black caretakers because you know there's a lot of bias that comes in when certain families are looking for um, certain caretakers especially ones that have to enter the home mm. you know and and let's face it Scott I'm, I'm sure you can think of um, some some white man or some white woman somewhere who doesn't like the idea of, of some Negro coming in their house and taking care of 90 year old granny you know mm-hmm. I mean let's Let's just let's just be real. So mm-hmm. anyway, shout out to Megan the Stallion. But anyway, here movement to um, strike a chord. Um, one of one of the um, pieces of music I brought in that really struck a chord with me this week was one that I shared um, on the radio um, early in the morning. So I forget what was going on, and I had to um, I had to switch some music out for length because you know it was it was too long for the hour. So. Um, I, I, I randomly um, was just listening through some things. You know, I had about 20 minutes to listen through a few things to see what would be a good fit. And I came across an arrangement of Eric Whitaker's um, Sleep for Marimba. And it's a um, an arrangement by uh, uh, Joby Burgess. And um, I thought, first of all, I thought was uh, I thought it would be cool because we were talking with Colleen Phelps down at um, from Nashville Public Radio. Yeah. And she is a, a percussionist. And we were talking about how percussion music doesn't make it onto the radio all that often so when I came across that and just how soothing it, it sort of felt and I, you know how I hate that word when it comes to classical music soothing but mm-hmm. there there is something soothing 
about it, and um, I got a lot of feedback from um, from from listeners about how how, how nice it was, and. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Joby Burgess's arrangement of sleep is really nice. And you know that I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the band from one of the most uh, illustrious eras, the 1970s, Starbuck, with Moonlight Feels Right. I do love that marimba solo. He bodied that. I mean, in a bodysuit. Yeah, <laughs> he bodied it in a bodysuit. <laughs> yeah, go check out that video. Starbuck. Did, did you have something that struck a chord this week? Starbuck. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so I, I guess this will be a quick movement too. So you know, I've been talking about the um, the BET Awards and um, what. Thinking about that opening quote for this uh, opus of Truloquy from Jasper, you know, all American music being black, that's something that uh, the BET Awards tried to, um, you know, try, tried to affirm last night, you know, the, the, uh, the, the diversity of blackness, and they invited a country singer named Kane Brown to perform. Now, first of all, had you heard of Kane Brown at nope. all? Nope. So, um, Black people in country just still isn't quite hidden because uh, all over social media, it, it was a mixed response. People feeling uncomfortable with country at the the uh, the BET Awards. But I mean, there is a history of black folks in country music. You know, are, are there any there's a name I'm thinking of. <laughs> is, is there a Lil Nas? In, I mean, in actual country music. I mean, shout out to Lil Nas X. But, <laughs> but, but, but is, is there a, a tried and true black country singer that you could think of? Nothing's coming to mind. See, I thought of, and I don't even know his real name, but Hootie. I don't know. I, am, I might. Okay. What's, All right, his, but, what, what's his actual name? I don't know, but <laughs> but I, you know I'm talking about Hootie from Hootie and the Blowfish. Hootie and the Blowfish. I was uh, oh, I, some, let me look on my phone right like, quick because uh, somebody's gonna be mad. They're like closer to roots than they are to oh you think <laughs> than he is to country. So um, does the the fact that and I'm Darius looking, Darius, Darius Rucker. Rucker. Yes, I did remember that. Okay, Darius Rucker. So is the fact that yeah before we get too much into Kane Brown, Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish. Um, is is the fact that he's black? Did that ever? Did that conversation ever come up? No, because with I never thought or? I never thought it was country. Okay, I thought he was just a, you know part of a pop band. And so. see, and that shows how much I know because his his singing style sounded plenty country to me. But okay, um, well. but but you know you had uh, Kane Brown who's up there singing the um, the the country music and. 
you know, when I saw people not really reacting, the black black Twitter not really reacting, just whole uh, open heartedly to Kane Brown uh, because of the country aesthetic, I started thinking about that on the classical style because you know with B E T classical side, so B E T affirming blackness in all genres. There is blackness in classical as we lay it out. You know, we lay out in this podcast and everywhere else. So if the B E T awards had an orchestra up there playing, I don't know the third movement of a floor. Price Symphony, you know, would it be the same? Would, would it would it not really hit, even though that it's a piece of music by a black woman and uh, performed, you know, at the BET Awards? I would hope by a black orchestra. You know, I wonder how that would how how that would roll. I used to be a mobile DJ, you know, and yeah. I can tell you that at least from the younger set, like high school and junior high age, if they don't like the music you're playing, they let you know. Yeah, and so I'm wondering if they would, you know, how? So how do you, oh, there? There's the question: How do you how do you present it so that the younger set would pay attention and think that it would that was dope? And I, and I actually think your work as a, a mobile DJ is kind of. Uh, a, a good metaphor to use because let's say you went to the school that I, I don't know when you were mobile DJing if you went to the black school it would have been Bill Bill DeVoe or who would have Tony, so, Tony 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 those folks okay so if you went in there playing some Hootie and the Blowfish even though Darius Rucker is black I might not have gotten out of there <laughs> I you, might not but what if you said wait wait he's mm. black <laughs> <laughs> don't care don't care okay so say for this Kane Brown you know it just wouldn't have hit and it didn't hit with a lot of black Twitter so um I don't know that that's one of the things I talk with uh Titus about that you and I talk with Titus about uh who who we interview for this so um I, I guess my, what I mean to to say here is that I too am a little turned off by that country aesthetic as soon you know I listened to a few of Kane Brown's uh openings of his songs I can't make it through a whole song but mm. maybe I need to be more open-minded if I want folks to listen to so-called classical I need to check into the black side of country music I suppose First and foremost, every time I see you, I feel obliged to uh, congratulate you on your engagement. I mean, your, oh, photos, thank you. your photos on social media, you know, look so just joyful. They, they, they put oh, a smile you, on everyone's face. How, how, is, uh, how has Engage Life been treating you? Engage Life has been great, man. I mean, I mean, we're in this transition now as far as like wedding planners come to complete halt. And we have to see what that looks like, you know, since COVID's hit and I'm out of a job for a year, you know, at least symphony orchestra is concerned. So a lot of stuff is different now, but she just started her medical residency. So she's, um, she's doing that her prelim year, she matched into dermatology. So just internal medicine. So she's all this COVID stuff going on. And um, so it's been engaged life has been great and it's been hectic because just of the circumstances that have happened her being in medicine, yeah. she's on the front line. So, you know, I'm, thinking about it every day and trying to do what I can to make her life as easy as possible while she's in residency. So how yeah. about we, how about we go ahead and, and, and talk about, you know, you know, when you got the news that you'd be unemployed for this uh, next orchestral season, I mean, first and foremost, how did that come down to you? How did the information reach you? Well, they, first of all, like, I think it was about two months before 
I think they told us, um, you know, that we could be possibly getting furloughed. And then I realized, like, I knew it was going to kind of happen just off the model and everything. And there's a lot of stuff going on that I can't talk about on here that has to do. But as of now, July 1st, we're furloughed um, and we will be, I mean, as of now, out of work for a year. I mean, I, I foresaw it. I wasn't shocked or anything like that. And for me, because I moved around so much and my career has been a testament to kind of how unstable this business can be, I've always always saved for a rainy day and i'm not feel bad for and that i mean i don't have any children anything like that in private schools or whatever or i don't you know i haven't taken out a mortgage yet nothing like that so i do feel bad for a lot of my colleagues and i hope that you know we all get through this at the end of the day and everybody survives and you know i mean it's it's a tough time but I mean, a lot of organizations are in this position, you know, so yeah. that just kind of is what it is. When I saw the news story came down that the Nashville Symphony was going to resume in the fall of 2021, mm -hmm. uh, I saw a lot of people reacting like, hey, we're, we're all about the safety and everything, but isn't that a little long? What was, what was your reaction? Do you think that's smart uh, for them to be looking that far out? Um, I mean, a lot of people don't know all the insides of what goes on, so... Yeah uh is it long i mean it's it, relatively if you're speaking about yeah being out for a year that's a long time but you know these are decisions that are above me these decisions that me as a musician i can't make um i just got to kind of roll with the punches but yeah. i mean i hope that they're doing it i mean i i think or i hope both um that they're doing what's best for the longevity of the organization so yeah. i mean i'm assuming that them doing this would be more preserving the institution over the long haul. I mean, because we have to, um, there's a certain amount of people we have to be, have to be in the hall for us to not be in the red. And uh, our model kind of works that way because our endowment isn't massive or anything like that. So we have to have high ticket sales in order to stable out. Yeah. You know, people coming up with more innovative ways and things like that and what can be done, but we'll see what comes in the future. But as far as all the business ends and those decisions, I'm not in those rooms. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, how, how you lay out what is required for, you know, the orchestra to be sustainable on stage. You know, I sit on the board of the uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and mm -hmm. it's uh, an organization that works a lot like um, public radio and public television uh, in that they do uh, pledge drives and, and people just give what they can. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that keeps ticket prices low. You know, that keeps ticket prices at five to ten dollars because, you know, folks are folks are putting forward what they can. And of course, you know, that isn't um, as surefire as, you know, um, uh, ticket prices that that can help uh, keep an organization afloat. But, you know, what is surefire these days, you know, as, as, right, as we've right. learned. I, mm -hmm. I wonder if you've uh, thought about on an institutional level ways uh, in which orchestras, maybe not just the Nashville Symphony, but orchestras in general need to, you know, flip around the way that they're engaging communities and the way they're trying to make money themselves so that, you know, they can survive because who knows how long before it's safe to crowd a concert hall again. So, so check this out. I've thought about that. That's a great way you framed it, man. Um, the, this is the thing that I've been really thinking about. I mean, there's always opportunity in disaster, right? That's something that's commonly said in politics and all this stuff in different realms of business for a bad reason a lot of times. But like, if you really think about it, I said orchestras are, and we have the right to play music, but are we rushing to get back to the same exact thing? Hmm. 
Is that what we're doing? We're rushing. I want to play my Mozart grandpa data. It's like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, and I also think even the way that we engage online, mm. you know, sometimes it's from a point of this deserves to be here, but you have to earn that respect. This is a completely different audience, man, online than the people who are writing checks a right. lot of times. And like the way you engage them, they're not going to think like, you know, there's a, there's a sound that comes over. There's a Philadelphia sound. There's a Cleveland. Nobody knows what that is who's engaging online, nor do they really care. Exactly. So I, I, I think that this is the time to be innovative. And when communities are not completely supporting something sometimes, you have to review on how you have engaged the community because the community would want you to be there. I'll give an example. Like the rap, you know, Lupe Fiasco. Yeah, yeah of course. The rap. So there was Atlantic Records was going through this really bad thing with him. And then the community of people and also uh, anonymous started like bugging stuff and going through Atlantic record and all this stuff. Like he had built such a strong critical mass of people that support his music and his message that when the disaster hit, they just came there. He didn't even yep. need to ask to the point that they were, they had to, for, he had to force their hand. So you have to have so much community engagement before anything happens. And I think a lot of times orchestra should be like, because this is great music, it should be supported. All, all music that's great is great. So what makes your music greater than another music that's great? You know, so I, the way that we even go towards communities, we need to change and see that what, how, instead of just coming back to the same thing, how can we come back differently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does that look like differently? Because a lot of these contracts are going to be renegotiated because of pay cuts or furloughs or whatever. And I said, I was doing an interview with, uh, with some people and they, we, they asked me about something about the union. I said, what can the union do to be different for orchestras moving forward since they put out like Black Lives Matter and all this? If you have to think about this, simultaneous things happening. There's protests and there's a pandemic. And these things are simultaneously happening, but people are trying to get back to what normal looks like after a pandemic. But what does normal look like after a protest? Right. Social people are consuming media in the way that social consciousness is changing. So your model and how it works and a lot of things about it won't be relevant. So how do you adjust after that? And I said, what needs to happen is, is that, look, musicians form an orchestra. Musicians pick musicians to be in the orchestra. Musicians form a union, unions create contracts, contracts negotiate with management, they create things, and then they build off of that model, and then they keep renegotiating to protect that model. So if you renegotiate and renegotiate, renegotiate, you're actually kind of conserving a conservative model over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, is now that things are open, re-examine what are your priorities and what can you do differently within your contract that ensures that there's some certain number of black players there. Yeah, it, black it, people tenured and protected. Go ahead, Gary. No, I was just gonna say it, it reminds me of the um, the whole notion of police reform. I, I've said on uh, social media the phrase police reform reminds me too much of the phrase plantation reform. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it doesn't get to the core of the issue, and and it sounds like that's um, kind of what you're touching on. And you've actually, you know, this is why it's so important to have so many different perspectives. 
I have yet until this very moment to think about um, the AFM's sort of relationship with, with all of this. And for folks who yes. uh, don't know, the American Federation of uh, Musicians, it's the union that, um, that all orchestral musicians, virtually all orchestral musicians belong to. I, I was a member for many years. And, mm. you know, hearing you say that they have openly affirmed that Black Lives Matter instantly um, makes me think of, uh, their responsibility to uh, put action behind those words when it comes to the audition process, when it comes to who we're um, offering these jobs up to or making sure uh, see these jobs, you know, moving forward in, in a in a reality where maybe we can get into the concert hall again. I mean, oh, I, I wonder if you could speak to that specifically, the, the uh, AFM's uh, responsibility um, to act beyond just those words that they, I guess, that they've affirmed on their website. Right, right, right. I mean, people have to remember the AFM is made up of a bunch of musicians. So musicians pay dues. I mean, this is something that, I mean, we all get the dues out of our check. We have contracts with the union. The union mm-hmm. has a lot of good things for it. Protects, make sure we get off of work on time. And, and a number 10 year uh, pay negotiations, a number of things. I mean, there's just a gamut of things that happen. But one thing has black people been there a part has that been a part of your mission in the union? How many anti-racism trainings have been in there? How many people black are in your union? How many black people running the union? Like if you're saying Black Lives Matter, then if you're saying the new phrase anti-racism, right? That's the new phrase that's going around now. Anti-racism is is an action. Then anti-racism must also be an action. It's not just a core belief system. Is what action item are you going to do to that? And I say people, if it doesn't have a tangible result at the end of it, then what is it? Changing hearts is one thing, but a lot of black artists are broke. A lot of black artists are not in these cushy jobs with these pensions, with, and pensions are shrinking. That's a whole nother conversation. But as far as like tenure and professorships and, 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 and health insurance, a lot of black artists have had to string together things to just survive. Right. And then a lot of our ideas are taken from us and, and, you know, fellowships or whatever. And then they research the orchestra with all the pictures and stuff they put out. So I'm just thinking to me, what can be done is that you need to look at the language. It's like anything else. And when orchestras say, you know what, we have a process in the way we do it. I call that states' rights. Mm. Like we need, to, we need to have a change on a national level. If you say an American orchestra, what does that look like? And I always ask people, when were your orchestras founded? And you say anti-racist, that means corrective action needs to happen. That means I need to bring your consciousness to a place that you don't think that what you're doing correctively is an advantage for me. It's actually corrective because there's a debt that's owed. So it's not necessarily that people, I think people really mix up things and say, what, you want more? What more are you asking for? There's a process. There's a way this to be done. A process is nothing but a contract that people agreed on. But who was in the room when these contracts were agreed upon? Who is the majority of people who negotiated this contract and do you have black people in mind? And I'm, and I'm always very, very strict when I say black people because you said black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Now I understand just in a diversity initiative that is not absent of my solidarity with other oppressed groups of color and other oppressed groups. But if you say black people, let's deal with that, the specificity of that issue. So if you say that, then you need to make sure that for black people within your contracts and with all this stuff, that we make sure that we bring about corrective action, that your orchestra, your board, your management, your staff looks different. Because if you said it's an American orchestra, a lot of black people have been here before most European people even stepped foot here. Mm-hmm. So every world, every war, 
everything. We've been here in 1619. A lot of people in orchestras came here in the early 1900s on capital that black people had built. So we need to talk about all that stuff. And then that gives us the real lens to have the conviction to do the right thing. And it won't seem so absurd to people within their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. You you use that phrase, uh, corrective action, corrective measures, and that's something that I've really been, you know, trying to trying to get my um, organization to to understand. You know, the the idea of cleaning up inside first before you make the outside look welcoming and 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 open to you know wh- whoever else. I'm wondering if um, you felt any of that uh, corrective action in light of some of you know, the drama you went through before um, COVID hit and b- before the season was canceled. I, I, I understand there was a, a little bit of drama there uh, with, mm-hmm. between you and one of your colleagues, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, so it, it, the good thing is someone asked me, there was like, uh, do we need more white allies? White allies have always been there, but they're increasing in number. And people are learning what it really means to be an ally, not to just believe, but to actually do. And I have to say one thing I have to give credit to more organizations that they took the right action in that time to make sure and the people at the top and were there because these are conversations that we've been having for a long time, whether it's anti-racism training and all that stuff been going on for years. So when something like that comes up, you know, there's the action that needs to be done. And a lot of people think that you know, I always say that they, they're like, we didn't know this side of this person. We didn't know that that was there. I said, different people's presence bring about different reactions in people that you know. That's just the way that it works. But what makes it more complex is, is that there may be someone that you love. Maybe someone that's a friend of yours. Maybe someone who's been a great colleague to you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that reaction won't come about when my presence is there. Right. And I think that I think I think the hardest thing is, is like when people hear about my story, they're like, that actually happened. Yes, it actually got to the point where I had to literally put I mean, it's public record. Now, that's what I can speak. I couldn't speak on it previously. It's public record that I had to put an order of protection, which was approved. Not one, but there's two orders of protection from someone else who was also in that with me, who's another black colleague of mine. Two order protections that were approved upon this person because they deemed that what they was putting out with stalkerish and threatening in nature. So th- this comes a result of me sitting on the stage playing that my presence bothered this person so much so they would escalate it to that level. Like I had to leave town the week of my tenure. And the good thing is, is that the orchestra, you know, the, the management of them stepped in to make sure that I was properly protected. It was, they stepped in to make sure that everything was taken care of for me and I can appreciate them for that. So. You know, but but the problem, but the bigger issue is, is that um, a lot of people think they have to really think that black bodies and places, when what people deem as the top, they're not used to being there. So if you think about a neighborhood, even if someone has one black family down the street, two or three coming there, you may question what neighborhood you're in, mm-hmm. and then you start talking about quality. And I always say that whenever blackness is is blackness and quality are two completely different things. There's no color on quality, but it's a funny that I would say people use quote unquote objective measures for their subjective agenda. Mm-hmm. So if you're on a job, oh, it's out of tune. It doesn't quite fit. Ah, I don't like it. Oh, it's just not working. 
you know, those types of things. There are objective measures worth are within the contract because there is no critical mass of black people. So you have to rely on allies that you have formed relationships with that would step in for you. But will even step, take that even further, is that if any of this should have never even gotten to this level, you had a number of people, black people that understand this type of action, this thing won't even escalate to that point. It's not that I'm out here trying to change the hearts of everyone out there. It's just that I want the equal protection and I want the right to be there and you should be able to leave me alone just like I leave you alone. So it's, it's, it's that type of thing, respect. Um, but a lot of people can't see that because they don't under, they've never been in an environment where they've been in predominantly black people. That person acted that way if the orchestra was 100% black people and there's only one person there who's white. Would they act like that? Right, Would they right. say the words that they say? Would you be so emboldened to have that much pride to go around spreading that type of thing? You probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't. But that's me. That's speculation, right? It's like how uh, it's like how Malcolm X once said, you know, there's only racism where there's a threat. So if if a if a place has yet to um, be so-called threatened by uh, the black woman or the black man, you know, it may seem more peaceful and more safe uh, than it actually is. Scott, I I wonder if you could uh, speak to that turning over um, uh, a new side of the card or or, or a new leaf during this era. You know, I mean. Surely, I, I guess what, what, what I want to bring you in on is the idea that in the same way that um, a person requires allyship in the positive, these people who have these uh, questionable thoughts or questionable ideas, surely they're being abetted by their own sorts of um, allies, or I can't think of another word, but, y- y- you know, uh, just, just, just this, this reality living beyond where we could see it. Um, and now it's it's shining a light. I wonder if you've experienced any of that within your circles. Well, you know, I live in a neighborhood where, uh, I don't know, I would say white people make up only about 50% mm-hmm. of the population, along with uh, Hispanic, Hmong, and Black. Well, and, and also there's, you know, there's other groups that are starting to grow. But, you know, uh, Titus, I was thinking about you here on uh, Juneteenth because I was on the air and I was putting together breaks where a lot of the things that you said started to come to mind, like when we were at the Sphinx Conference in February. And um, I, I was thinking about our conversation of firsts, you know, um, how mm-hmm. we, we need to get past. Here we are in 2020 and we're still talking about this was the first black person to do whatever it was and also thinking about how um people are tired of hearing about well it's a first step Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know so uh a lot of uh the ways that i'm trying to be an ally or trying to inspire others to 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 be an ally is getting beyond first steps you know how do i how do i show what the third and fifth and tenth steps are that's that's the sort of things that I'm thinking about, Garrett. I don't know if I'm actually answering your question. Well, I think you're actually, yeah, I think you're hitting on something because it's very easy. You know, a lot of individuals and a lot of institutions um, have stepped forward to affirm, at least in word, that Black Lives Matter. But I agree with you, mm-hmm. Scott, that you know it's it's about what's next. Those those next steps. What what are the actionable items? And Titus, it it seems like you know, those next steps is it's what's uh, really separating, you know, those who have, at, at least in my purview, those who have been engaged in these conversation 
patience and this work all along and those who are trying to jump on the boat you know, all of a sudden uh, as, as a way of, of virtue signaling or, or being on the so-called right side of history. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. Look, it's people tend, and we're talking about, let's talk about orchestra specifically, like, yep. right? Look, I don't care if people have some different uh, viewpoint than me politically. I don't care, to be honest with you. The biggest thing that I, I remember I was reading this book, by, uh, watching this lecture by King, and King said, you know, I've been fighting to change people's hearts for a long time, but I need laws. And people, and people if they're punished by laws, then they need to obey the law. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and, and the, the, the interesting thing that I see about the first is, I always go back to this James Baldwin quote, and I'm sure, Gary, you probably know this quote, he said, um, you always talk about your progress and you say, you took my, you need time for your progress. You know, you took my great grandfather's time to my grandfather's time, you took my time. Now you take my nieces and nephews time. How much time did you need for your progress? Mm-hmm. And what people must understand is, is that when I'm put in the category of more the radical, right? These are people <laughs> who sit up and read memes all day and, and, and sit on social media echo chambers. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people to pick up, this stuff is old. Like you are in the era of civil rights. Just because we're, this is, I think of time, not my time, this is Gen Xers and Generation This. No, you are still in the era of civil rights because there was an era of Jim Crow that lasted for a hundred years. And then there was slavery that lasted 250 years. So I'm sure they had different generations amongst that era but now maybe in year 3000 if the planet doesn't explode right you know we're going to talk about the civil rights era and we're going to be in that era so in that era if people haven't gotten been fully made american or gotten the same privileges that other people have had then why am i still fighting for civil rights if i'm not in this era so I'm saying that as far as me being the first, I think it's a shame that there are more black astronauts than there are principal black global players. And NASA's a hell of a lot more insular. And <laughs> I mean, you're going to out of space. They're building billion dollar rockets. But what does that say? But what does that say about the status of classical music as a black man? We can go to outer space before we can be, become the principal whatever of an orchestra. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally. Exactly. Literally. One of my friends told me, I was like, man, that is so true. And the, the interesting thing I, I like to, uh, to, to, to think of is we have to think of orchestras in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's beautiful music. I love the music. Mahler's great. Bach's great. You know, all this music is awesome. Just on a personal, emotional connection, just how I react to it emotionally. But then it's also cultural affirmation that happens in the hall. So there's a reason why something is programmed a certain way it is, reason why it looks a certain way it looks. Although we're participating in music, there's also our cultural affirmation that's happening. And I say, is there truly an American orchestra or are we European approximates? Mm. Which one are we? The halls? Even if you really think about the concept, you know, and, I, and that's the, it's easy for me to talk about from my the, the privilege I have playing in the orchestra is that you're in the best part of real estate, usually downtown, a non-for-profit building in the best part of real estate where usually banks are for-profit places. 
They pay people big salaries and give them tenure, protect them, and say that we think that this music is important, this culture is important, so therefore we would sink millions of dollars in this to culturally affirm this over and over. And you would negotiate contracts over. That's really, and, and then on top of that, we're not going to talk about where a lot of this capital has come from. We're not going to talk about the transelected slave trade and how arts were a privilege in the king's courts and all these things mm-hmm. based off of what labor and money. Mm, so exactly. If, if we really, really thinking about this, if you're going to teach me about Beethoven's third, 1806, when it was during that time, you got to tell me what's going on simultaneously in America at that time. Right. Box, cello, suite, what is simultaneously happening? And you would get the answer right there first. You would get the answer why. Why isn't Florence Price in, in the canon? Why isn't Margaret Bonds in the canon? Why isn't William Grant still, but we play Gershwin? Why, when you get an all-black cast, you do Porgy and Best, was written by Gershwin, but we can't get a black composer primarily to do these things? So, like, we, there is some dissonance that's there that people don't necessarily want to address. And I think if you look at the history right in the face, square in the face, you will get your solution. But I can say, oh, I feel a certain way about being the first. Yeah, I feel a certain way. I say bring the team, bring the culture, because if there are about 10 people there, then there's a cultural shift in the organization. It's not just Titus is there. Yeah, so I, I, do think, <laughs> I, I do think that in, we have to do a deep dive of what this looks like. And I tell even my black colleagues, everybody, read up on this. You, you can be as pissed as you want to be, but unless you actually know what it is, then we're just going to be running in circles. And I, I actually wanted to get onto the topic of uh, black complicity, the question of, of mm-hmm. black complicity. Um, but, you know, I, a, a lot of people have uh, done their best to uh, dance around some of uh, the the things that have caused a lot of these conversations, you know, the protests, um, so some of the riots, you know, uh, black people uh, on TV, on the radio, whatever, have have done a great job of doing the whole, well, I don't condone X, Y, and Z, but um, I understand why it's happening. I, I wonder if you could speak uh, directly to um, what you feel like a black musician, a black classical musician's response should be to some of the, the unrest we've been seeing. I mean, wh- what can you say to the, the downtown city centers that have been um, hurt? I don't think I've seen a, um, a, a news story about a concert hall being uh, wrecked or anything. But <laughs> I, I mean, for, for, from your perspective, you know, how, how does the conversation of that um, so-called violence parlay into uh, what we're trying to do on the classical music side of things, you know, to support, to not support, to condone, to not condone? I mean, the, the interesting thing of it is, it's like, uh, a lot of Black people in these spots walk on tight ropes. And the reason why they're on t- tight ropes, because they don't have a big enough, I always say critical mass to feel supported if you were to speak out. And here's the other interesting thing about it. I remember I was watching this one person, and he said, I'll give my own personal view on the first and I go into that. <laughs> I think that we should, we, we're all part of those people. Black people in this country are part of that bottom cast that's here. There's a reason why, even if you step into a concert hall, I said even the questions that were asked on interviews, how was your experience as a Black musician? Yeah. We're in a field where majority of the people most of the time are privileged. There aren't any horror stories. that When they ask about struggles, about how hard did you practice and how did you, 
you know, get this run at the beginning of Dvorak cello concerto. That's the struggle. And I said, a lot of times the struggle is, I said, so for some people, auditions are for sport and for others, it's survival. Yeah. But we don't talk about that. We don't talk about when you're in a conservatory and I was in Cleveland and there's East Cleveland with my people over there. But I'm in university circle with tons of security around it to go study classical music. Like these things are simultaneously happening. There were black people who were in, you know, in orchestras years ago while the Black Panthers are out on the street marching. So like, I think that people should really understand that no matter where you are, you are tethered to that community and it's not even your choice. Yeah. Whether you deny it or not, you are part of that cast, whether you like it or not. Because you will be seen as one of them at some point, whether it's on the stage, off the stage, walking down the street, that reckoning will happen to you. Your blank wake-up call will happen at some point. So I'm, I'm, I, I really, really, and, and, and as far as like, um, I really want us as Black people to understand that like representation with no cultural capital means nothing. Mm. So me on that stage, without playing a Black composer or reaffirming myself culturally in any way, I can still, that doesn't mean that I can't participate in the Bach or the, or the Brahms. I can participate in that. But if this art form is absent of my people, absent, there's, there's, no, there's barely any repertoire there. There's barely any representation there. What does that mean? What, 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 is, what does that mean? Is that a win for us? That I'm in proximity of what they deem to be great? Mm-hmm. And I always thought to myself, these platforms are used for leverage to even wake my own people up. Because sometimes they don't understand that they're putting more, more stock into something that doesn't even necessarily represent you totally. So I'm saying that as far as, as, far as we are concerned, I say that if we want, when we want to play Black stuff, I push the concert hard to play more Black stuff. But I also say, how much stuff have you learned? Both yeah. and. We have to hit all fronts. We're on the online medium now. When people said, hey, do you want to do something like Lift Every Voice? Black composer, Ranger, let's do it now. Look at the impact it does. The reason why it's impact is people are looking for that. You have the cultural capital. So like, if you really think about it, we have to think about ways and creative ways that we can present our music. Enough, well, there's enough of us. Just, just get a click track together. Buy the music off the person, find a grant to, to fund the composer to write it for you and just do it. But do you find value in that though? That's the question. Is right. that valuable to you? Is the music itself and your culture valuable enough to you? So I think that there's so many fronts in which we should really, really think about this. And like, I remember, if, even if you look at the Black Panther Party, they said, they're not going to feed our children, we're going to feed our children. They're not going to teach them, we're going to teach them. And the thing, if you're not going to play my music, I play my music and I'm going to play it. I'm going to play the hell out of that music. I'm not going to be begging, knocking on doors. I want to play the Mozart concerto. I'm a black man. I can't play Mozart concerto. <laughs> no, there's, there's like a thousand Mozart concerto. What is mine in the, in the sea of Mozart concertos going to do? What is that going to do? Yeah. yeah. I think that I am more concerned about the canon in which we've written that's already been here and more to be here to leverage that and to give and to celebrate that. And other white people want to participate in that. Play a black composer. Go give to a black composer. Take some money out of your symphony pocket and go 
give money for a black person to commission that work and for a black person to perform that work. Right, right. Both. As, if you, you want to use your privilege, yeah. As I, as I say, you know, about, um, you know, uh, white folks wanting to be involved with that black canon, you know, seasoning mm -hmm. just tastes good. You know, it's not about, <laughs> you know, just, just doing it for the sake of doing it, but this is actually good music. This is art that, you know, in, in many people's opinion, outweighs all of those old Haydn and, and, and even Beethoven symphonies. You know, what we really need to explore, as you've said, as that uh, American orchestra, the idea of an American mm -hmm. orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, Titus, three opuses ago, I threw down the gauntlet and said the first orchestra to announce an all-black season wins. Now, I'm listening to what you're talking about here today. Is there an orchestra in the country that's poised to even do that? I, I mean, I think orchestras like, I think, has Chicago Sinfonietta done that before? Have they done all black season? I'm not you know, sure. The, the Chicago Sinfonietta definitely, um, you know, put, puts a lot of effort uh, into that. I almost uh, want to disqualify them, though. <laughs> and, and, and shout yeah, out are, to are you saying, Are you saying like a like a what we call a top five or a big five or something like that? If right, you go right. to Seattle, right, check this out. L.A. Do think, yeah. Do I think orchestras ready to do that right now? No. But let me take. Let me tell you my short answer. But here's the here's the thing that's so like that's why I like to go deep on this thing. When you go to conservatory what we call black music, right? We say black music. Black music is not a monolith. They're black right. from all over the planet that are yeah. different from one another. So when someone talks to, if someone plays, you know, a phrase like Debussy, a, a phrase that Debussy wanted to be phrased in box canon, someone would look at you like you're crazy. That's the European diaspora. Like, really think about this. I go to school to learn the European diaspora of music and culture. You say Janacek is different from Wagner. And look at this. Look at the way the Italians did it. Then the English did it this way. And then the Germans did it this way. And then look, the Finnish, Sibelius. It's different. Isn't that amazing? And look at what Copeland was doing. Henry Cowell in the American and Steve Rice. Like, you're telling me European diasporic art forms, which should be celebrated, but also both and Mine should be celebrated as well. And it's not just black music. Yeah. There are, there are composers in West Africa and the Caribbean and Brazil. And I mean, you think about it in America, like all over the place. So there's so much black, there's so much music, just as much as there in the European diets. I'm saying celebrated all. I'm not saying that that shouldn't have its place, but it shouldn't have its place at the expense of others. And I'm saying that we should be celebrating our music. We have so much stuff there to play. So if I were to program an all black season, they program all white seasons all the time. Right. And that question is never asked. You know, the, the metaphor I've pulled together in my mind as I've uh, listened to you talk, it's like we're, we're walking up to this apple tree looking for sweet potatoes when no one has bothered to plant the sweet potatoes. It goes all the exactly. way back into the educational systems. You know, my, my teacher, Lacola, you know, Lacola, you know, y'all know Lacola. Yeah, of course. Of course. talks all the time about, um, how it's not just a music education, but a music assimilation, you know, mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. we're taught the idea of value and quality through that, through learning chord progressions, through mm -hmm. learning th this literature. Um, but, but, you, but you said something, Titus, that uh, I think provides a, a pretty good segue. You know, you, you talked about how black music is not a monolith. No. And, um, and, and before we uh, started recording, I, uh, I brought up the BET Awards and I talked a little bit about how, um, you know, there was a, a black country 
Street uh, star who performed right. Kane Brown and how the social media response was kind of mixed. You know, black people just hear that country aesthetic and just are, are triggered, <laughs> my, 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 myself included to an extent, you know. And, uh, when, and, and so when we broaden out that conversation into, you know, um, uh, black folks involvement into that genre, Scott, that folks call roots, black mm-hmm. um, involvement in this so-called classical music. Titus, uh, I wonder if you could uh, speak to the sort of cultural discomfort that uh, Black people in mass have with uh, these genres that are seen as traditionally white genres of music, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that Black folks not only participate in them, but have been foundational to it. You know, just think about Mm -hmm. country music and and the Black roots of country music. Think about the fact that uh, Dvorak in the late 19th century said, you can't have uh, an American school of music without Black folks. You know, he talked Mm -hmm. about how Negro melodies, in in his words, served as that foundation. So yeah, I, Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can... Um, speak to that. We're we're involved in so much more than we as a people accept. Right. right. I mean, the, you know what's really funny? This happened with uh, punk rock as well. Mm. Also techno. Mm-hmm. Techno is five brothers from Detroit. That's yep. Detroit music. Tech. I mean, I remember when I first saw the documentary, brothers on there doing like these weird dances to techno. Like, yeah, this <laughs> Detroit, man. I'm just like, whoa. But you would never wish house music and all this stuff that's coming out of it, EDM that's come out of this. Like, if you think about blues and, 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 and the sorrows and, and plantation songs and all that stuff, blues and all these things that have to do with plantation songs and all this, this is what goes into country. I lost my dog and my baby and this and that. I mean, if you really, really and the banjo, I mean, someone was telling me about the, uh, the instrument, which came from West Africa, which is like the template for, for the, the banjo. Inanga, I think is the name of that instrument. Yeah. I grew up when people would say, if you, if you spoke properly, you talk white, right? Yeah. They'd be like, oh, you talk white or something like that. It's like, no, th- have you read Du Bois or, or Douglas or any of these people? Like, have you researched these people? Like, great Baldwin and great thinkers. Yeah, Rust like and all those people. But all them, you come from great thinkers, man. So even cla- what you think is classical music and it's so pent up, the way that it's packaged now, of course, it seems distancing. But my, my main thing is, is that, yes, I've had reactions like that for in the past out of ignorance. My parents would be like, that isn't right. Learn your roots and where you come from. And if I saw a black man singing country, I'd be like, we've been a part of this the whole time. And they say, you know, that we, and they're building a, a museum of African-American music here in Nashville, this massive museum. I said, that's country music hall of fame. <laughs> you get right. what I'm saying? Y'all already have that. <laughs> you already have that. But if you want to add on to that, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, think, I think that is um, the thing that I find fascinating with classical music. People see themselves like, look, let's just entertain this. Like people saying Beethoven's black, brown. People like, no, Beethoven's not black. He's not black. No, Beethoven is black. But look at how that happened. The the interest, how people shifted, and them seeing themselves in that. Just imagine if that were true. Entertain the idea of all the people that were, no, no, he's on that conspiracy stuff. Just entertain it. Yeah. Look at the response in which when people see themselves in something, they take pride in it and they want to be a part of it. So if, if I were to show a little black girl Florence Price, or someone, even a, a black woman, say, you have been a part of this and you see yourself in this, 
That's a much different response. We said, here's Mozart. He has this powdered wig on. And he was born in 17, blah, blah, blah. And this and that. People are like, oh, that's cool. But how are you a part of this? And, and, part, and even a part of like, especially people descended slaves in this country, a part of that journey is finding your roots and where you're from and seeing yourself. So it, it, it even, even more exacerbates the problem. Yeah. To see that I'm a part of something that isn't part of me. And I think that art and music, everybody should be able to participate in anything where it's most, I'm not saying you can't play that, but I think it is key that we have enough repertoire and we don't even have enough time on this earth as black people to even play all of it or record all of it. So you better spend a lot of your time dedicated to this because we got to make up for the time that was lost. Yeah. Um, we're pretty close to that how that so-called independence day all right um mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. are looking at um the pledge of allegiance a lot different the um the national anthem and mm-hmm. i think in a, in a way it's forced folks to look at um the so-called negro national anthem in a different mm-hmm. way lift every voice um and and of course you were involved with uh, a very special arrangement of that that made the rounds across the internet. Um, it was performed at the League of American Orchestra's uh, digital uh, convening that, that I was lucky enough to uh, get to see. I, I wonder um, how your relationship with that song has changed or evolved during this time, or if it's a, a tune that you always stood up and took your hat off for. I mean, the the Negro National Anthem, I had to grow up learning that. My mom used to pound that thing in our head like crazy. You so said like your grace, me, you sang the anthem and then you could eat. Exactly. <laughs> so like I had to know the Negro National Anthem. I had to know what that was. And you know, speaking of lift every voice, like my vision for that, putting the picture together, directing that, and even getting the players together, asking the composer to um so I was the executive produce on that. So it was like my brainchild, that lift every voice, which is almost like probably at this point, almost a million views at this point, which is insane. Yeah. It was at least like three, three weeks ago. But the, the, the fascinating thing about it is, is that that was always a part of me. And that's why I was able to come from a very deep place. And speaking of Independence Day, like 1776, I always ask people like, independence from who and who had independence here? Like, just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean that the conversations need to be had. And if the, un- if the conversation isn't uncomfortable, then you're having the wrong conversation. Yeah, yeah Especially about American history. It's not pretty. My ancestors didn't own slaves. They came here after that. I, I, I get that. I hear that a lot from a lot of different people. But they had something to come to. And someone had to build that something to come to. And although you're not the person who owned the slaves, but Black people have inherited the cost of slavery, the cost of Jim Crow, the cost of mass incarceration. We have been there. And, and I think that this should be reflected in our art and our understanding. And it is, I find it a lot of times being a black person, sometimes we spend our time running away from what it means from blackness. Cause it's, 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 a, it's a great weight to bear at times. Like if I'm on a stage and I see George Floyd, that's a great weight to bear, to see that. I'm in tails and he is on the street near an exhaust pipe. So it's, that's a lot because I know that the first time I was harassed by cops, I was 14. And I had to talk with my parents about the police and how to, uh, how to navigate that space and all the oppressive measures that has caused heightened violence and all this stuff in our communities. 
I mean, I, I, I get the cost that we have inherited from that. So it is difficult in this time to be a, a black classical musician. It really is because it's really redefining what it means. And I had a colleague to me say to me, he said, you know what? They really see you as black now. They, they see <laughs> you as that now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there isn't the, my exceptionalism doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make me when I was living. It doesn't, ab- in, it doesn't absolve you from, you know, the cost of being black. Exactly. So I think, I think those are the things when people point to me as this, this, uh, this example, it makes it really hard at this time to say, what can I do better? What can I do more? What are the action items? What are the things I could demand from this position? How can we move as a block and, and, and demand from things in different positions? How can this work? Because I should be using the things that I have gained to help my community because I am a part of that community and I come from that. So um, those are the hard things when you think about, you know, 1776, Negro National Anthem, Juneteenth, which I grew up with and now it's coming into the into the Right now it's trendy, yeah. It's trendy now. And, I'm, and, and, I, and I, even, I even, for some of my black colleagues who have, you know, navigate these spaces so well and coming to the new woke space, you got a lot to read and learn as well. Yep. All of us got a lot to read and learn. Everybody does because America has always been a dichotomous society. There's always been two Americas. It's always existed. It's not like it's something new because it's not something new. When it said, oh, you know, home of the free, you know, the brave and liberty for all this. When you define liberty, when you define what white is, you define what black is, this is a dichotomous culture. And always has been. And when you're trying to make those intersect one another and actually talk about it, there's going to be some massive friction because there's going to be a lot of stuff that looks really ugly about it. So I say lean into it and to my and to white allies have to lean into it. Like just sitting there, let that burn for a long, burn, burn, burn. <laughs> I don't want to feel bad for being a white man. I understand how you feel. I get it. But this is just a conversation for you. It is, you can leave the conversation and go back to comfort. Yep. So I, I, want, I want people to really think about this in a serious way. And like I say, read, uh, where do we go from here, Martin Luther King? Read New Jim Crow. Read these books. Like, understand what place you live in. Because, because you live in a certain place doesn't mean that something isn't happening to someone else in the same country. Yeah, the the weight of 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 blackness. You know, you you, you keep saying that year seventeen seventy six. You know, uh, and we've bring, been bringing up Mozart. That was that was the heat of of, of his compositional career. You know, mm-hmm. so I, so I can't listen to um, a Mozart symphony or, or 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 to an opera without thinking about you know my direct ancestors who were who were uh, breaking soil. While while that was happening, so what does mm-hmm. that mean now? What what does it mean for for me for folks like us to advocate for that music and not include that perspective? I sort of see it. Um, as, I personally I see it as, as my responsibility. I won't speak for you, but there, there, there's no way for me not to um, to to show that side of the coin when mm-hmm. when presenting that music. And 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 as you said, it creates friction. It's uncomfortable for a lot of people. But um, I've I've uh, grown comfortable with that discomfort from uh, other people because that's what it's going to take to, you know, get things moving. That yeah, that that, that discomfort. Yeah, tell like I said, Garrett, tell, people have to tell the full story. Tell the full story. It's like, yeah, I, if we're sitting here playing an Italian opera from the 1800s, like, and and I'm there in my existence, 
especially as it pertains to the uplifting of this art form, there's nothing wrong with leaning into that. And I don't think that, I think the difference between this generation and the other generations, they inherited seeing Trayvon Martin. They inherited seeing Black, it's, it's different. It's not, it's not where there's just exceptionalism, but you really see what's been bubbling at the surface the whole time. And now that people are starting to say, I cannot run away from that, I can't just be complicit. We must investigate the whole thing and it's gonna go beyond your lifetime. The fight will go beyond, beyond your, the undoing. It's taken a long time for this to be in place. It's gonna take a long time for it to get out of place, for things to be replaced. So don't be so selfish with your own life because people literally lost their lives for you to be here. Absolutely. Wow. Um, Titus, how, how can folks um, reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing? I guess they aren't going to see you on, uh, on stage in Nashville, yeah, no. but, may, but maybe you have some other digital performances planned or lined up. I have a lot of stuff lined up. You can check me out on Instagram at Titus Oboe, muscle Titus Underwood on Facebook. Website is in the works now, but check me out on Instagram at Titus Oboe. And Titus in the wood on Facebook and check out Lift Every Voice, the project that I put out a while back. And uh, there is a lot more to come in this year. It's going to be a lot of cool stuff. All the stuff that I'm talking about is going to be more the front, in the forefront done in a very artistic way. So let's get it. Yes, thank you once again to Titus for uh, being on Triloquy. You know, I was really sad that... Um, we, we couldn't put his first interview out because of, you know, the drama he was dealing with with some of his colleagues. That was intense. And, yeah, that was intense. But maybe, um, actually, uh, maybe I'll be able to uh, uh, put that out as a bonus. So uh, uh, look for that uh, where you're listening to this and then the entire conversation that uh, me, Scott, and uh, Titus had over Zoom. We'll get that uh, video on the uh, Triloquy.org uh, website for you to check out. But uh, we have the Triloquy to do right now here at Movement 4. Now, before we get started... <laughs> <laughs> There's a wind-up. I want to just cover, again, what we mean, what, what our goal is with this fourth movement, with this triloquy. So first and foremost, let's go back into our linguistics and um, break down the word triloquy. Trill, true and real, unapologetically uh, honest, statements, monologues, colloquies, soliloquies, triloquies. So that's what we're doing. And I felt like as I was thinking about the, about triloquies for this week, you know, I was thinking about, well, is this just going to be a dragging session? And it's not about <laughs> that. It's just about me, you know, exhibiting some of my frustrations and how we can do better. Okay, so that's, that's the sweetness that's going to coat the sour, I guess. All right, fair enough. All right, so first and foremost, Gramophone Magazine. So when I am at work, Scott, and you can speak to this, and I have this really phenomenal piece of music that I'm ready to share uh, with the listeners, but, you know, there's not a whole bunch of information in the, if there is a CD, you know, in the sleeve, you know, uh, the piece is too new to really have a Wikipedia page or something, so you're looking for everything you can. So, you know, you're Googling and carrying on, and you actually find a website that has something, you click on it, and there's a paywall. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I'm sure you've dealt with that, right? Yeah, So on I dealt, I dealt with that um, last week with a piece of music by Sergio Assad called Interchange. Sure. I don't know if you've heard. It's a I've guitar played it many quartet. Times. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, just a phenomenal piece of music. And I did find the information I needed, but it looked like Gramophone had the best information for me. But I couldn't read it because of a paywall. So, you know... We're talking about COVID. We're talking about people out of work. We're talking about, you know, using music to, excuse me, really uplift people and be that companion. And and Gramophone Magazine, if you're listening to this, I just hope that you'll reconsider the way that you share your information or you put your information out there. I know that it can't be compiled for free, but give people the the opportunity to donate. I mean, in that moment, you know, you really could have helped me um, expose an audience to a piece of music that ex- that uh, explores something other than that Western, you know, European aesthetic and, and symphonic music. And I had to go somewhere else. I'm sorry that you could not be an ally to me, but I hope you will be in the future. Is there a way that you can pay just for one article or do you have to get like a month subscription or what? I just feel like the information be, should be there for, for us because to share. As soon as I, as soon as I see the paywall, I immediately hit reverse I mean what are we supposed to and I'm not about to go grab my credit card and do all that and I have 15 minutes to type something up to tell the 2 million listeners you know no anyway I'm not shitting on gramophone completely but I I was just upset I I was disappointed not upset I was disappointed I I I thought that gramophone could be more of that ally these days so I hope you'll reconsider I I I mean maybe maybe if it's just pieces of music by black composers and other composers of color you know letting that be your your bit of equitable work, allowing us to explore that information so that we can learn more, you know, about these um, lesser explored corners of classical music. I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's, that's one of mine. What you got? I ran into something like that, too, where I couldn't find very much information about it, and I forgot that I didn't find very much information uh-huh. about it. I thought that I had already written something out, and so I scrolled to the spot where I'm supposed to do the break and go, oh, shazam. <laughs> All right. So I had to make something up, and I went, have you noticed that right now your ears are the most important feature on your face? <laughs> Think about it. They're holding your earbuds. They're keeping on your sunglasses and now a mask. And if it weren't for your ears, you couldn't hear beautiful music like, like this. this. See, you'd be cheap. See, oh, but when you do it, you're freaking it. Okay, but when I do, when I do it, it's cheap. But when okay, you do no, it, you no, freak that it. Is good. No, that, that, that would be good for All last right, well, let me see sure. if I can freak my triloquy okay. here. Okay, so you know the, the last two opuses I have focused on, Sheku Kenna Mason yeah. and stories about him. Um, so I made the point in... Uh, two weeks ago about how they started to talk about how if you put more orchestral instruments in the hands of people of color, then you will have more people of color playing right. orchestral instruments. Right. And you said, oh, now, yeah. wait a minute. We know that there's other things that have been set up to prohibit that. Okay, so now on Classic FM, this is uh, less than a week old, this story. Chalice Sheku Kenna Mason says, classical music isn't racist. It's about access to music education. Star cellist insists there's not inherent prejudice in classical music, but more black children need to be taught the subject to combat a lack of diversity in the industry. That's what Sheku said. That's what Sheku said. So, so basically, you want me to come? Well, no, this is your triloquy. So say, sorry, this is your triloquy. Say what you got to say. Well, because I was just, I'm, I'm curious. You know, you do this to me, where all of a sudden I have to be the representative of a middle-aged white man, right? Okay, listen. 
shout out to Sheku. I'm not here to hate on him. None of that. But I think what he's not thinking about is what is being what is the music education you know what is being taught you know uh we just got done talking with titus about music education and music assimilation you know so Mm -hmm. i think if these if more young black children are learning about who they are and what connections they have with um this so-called classical music and other genres not just that i think we can broaden the field for more people i don't think teaching black children heighten is is you're the not going to thing you're not going to get him in playing Chimarosa because how many I mean okay great she- Sheku plays a a beautiful Brahms a, a a beautiful Mozart when is the shtick of the black cellist playing this old white European music going to be up okay I'm I, I'm I'm listening I don't know so I know I know folks are going to be saying I'm hating on Sheku I'm not hating on Sheku but it's more than teaching young black kids. Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven and all that. I, I, I think we need to, you know, shout out to John Del Vento from, from season one. You know, we mm-hmm. need to be teaching these kids um, how great of a composer Stevie Wonder was mm-hmm. and, and, and Al Green and, sure. even, and, and even going back in, into the Louis Armstrongs and, and, and all that, you know, just, just enriching the music education. So my, my final little uh, triloquy here, anybody who follows me on Twitter know what's up. Mm-hmm. I knew where this was going. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, 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 Tom. <laughs> so for, for folks who don't know, so there's a, a classical writer over at NPR, National Public Radio, who put out an article called uh, with the title, Finally, Someone Remembered the Negro Folk Symphony of William Levi Dawson. So you know how that hit me the wrong way immediately. And I went ahead and, and uh, read the article. And basically what he was talking about was how, you know, it's been re-recorded, how, you know, it's one of these overlooked symphonies when it comes to being recorded and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but you already know how that headline sounds it sounds like oh um thank goodness one of these um one of these really smart one of these uh white people who care so much has finally unearthed this forgotten symphony by this black composer that y'all didn't know about but here it is okay first and foremost the uh the negro folk symphony of william levi dawson makes it over the airwaves i played it all the time in knoxville it's in the c24 rotation Folks have uh, performed it. You know, folks on my uh, Facebook and other social media talk about how they actually performed it on stage semi-recently. You know, so so by by saying statements like that, um, you're you're erasing that reality, the reality that we do know this music. Okay, B, there are people alive who worked with uh, William Levi Dawson. You know, uh, shout out to uh, our very own Mindy Ratner, Mm, our our American public media colleague. Uh, She sang in a choir where uh, William Levi uh, Dawson conducted it. You know, she she tells a story about him. So, you know, when 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 you uh, write these headlines, it's it's erasing her experience and folks like her, you know, she hasn't forgotten about William Levi Dawson and all and all of his work. But then finally, really, it's a disservice to your audience. You know, if, if this is it sends the wrong message, it, it, doesn't it, it? It sends the wrong message. It, it, it's saying, you know, n- no one has paid attention to this until now. We're, you know, let that white savior complex, you know. So, of course, I had to do a little bit more research. OK, here we go. So I, so I went through his Twitter and 
um, you know, they did another feature about, you know, have you heard about these um, old school black composers? And they had Nathaniel Dett on there, which I will myself admit that maybe not a whole bunch of people know. But among these three or four composers they named was both Florence Price and William Grant Still. Mm. So whenever we say the phrase black composers, are those not the two names that pop up? I you feel, have to be living under a rock now. I feel I mean, like, right, in the year 2020, most public radio stations are hip to Florence and, Price. Right, Florence Price and William Grant Still, and, and most classical music institutions, period. Now, if your listeners... Um, are going to um, genuinely and positively react to, wow, I've never heard about William Grant Still. That means y'all just haven't been doing what y'all supposed to be doing. Mm. That, that, that's my opinion. Yeah. And um, as we're um, taking another look at race and, again, um, these oppressive structures and, and systemic issues, I think it's important to call out actions like these, uh, sort of implying the rediscovery of this well-loved piece of music among black communities and folks who appreciate um, uh, so-called classical music from the black diaspora you know, um, sort of um, con continuing to make new um, the names Florence Price and Florence Price and William Grant Still. You know, it's, it, it really uh, perpetuates this othering sort of identity mm. of this music and, and of these composers that has to stop. We, we, there, there are so many, you know, it, it's, we can't celebrate the people uh, who are here and alive if we don't even understand, you know, the history and where we were, you know. So, um, just I, I would hope that um, folks who saw, you know, my reaction to the tweet, which got um, more uh, reaction and engagement than the story itself on Twitter, I will add, you know, I hope that um, folks seeing that will take that as their opportunity to really consider language, to, um, to think about those black people who are doing this work and who have been doing this work, and um, to think about why something like this made it all the way through the pipelines, you know, because I'm sure there are people who edit and, and, and quality check. and. But clearly they have not hired anybody to say it out loud before they press send. Or, or somebody black for, for, that, for, for that much. And if there well, is somebody black in that office, you, you need to do better too because that doesn't need to be coming down the pipeline. Shots fired. All right, so if none of that was trilling up for you, next week we're going to talk about a violinist named Louis Farrakhan. <laughs> See you there.